0: Really want to start by thanking the organisers uh, very for their kind invitation to participate in this symposium on such a fascinating uh, topic. And I'll also just check maybe if, if the screen is not showing for you. I guess you'll wave an arm or something. But okay, <laughs> hopefully uh, you can see the screen. Okay, of course this um, topic is incredibly relevant in a way, at the moment, isn't it, when the world population is having its lives and it's sometimes death as well. I mean, we're just so disrupted by a single chance event that took place in a single bat coronavirus. That's really something to think about, isn't it, as we sit here in our various countries uh, with all the restrictions and all the challenges that we have right now. So what a way to start thinking about uh, chance in evolution. And I guess we should go back, first of all, and just ask, you know, Charles Darwin, well, how did he understand the question? When he published The Origin of Species in 1859, it was widely presented as a theory that depended on chance, thereby leading to some very natural anxieties about the theory's implications. Here we have, though, his quote from the sixth edition of his great book in 1872. And he writes that I have hitherto sometimes spoken as if the variations were due to chance, missing out a bit there. This, of course, is is a wholly incorrect expression, but it serves to acknowledge plainly our ignorance of the cause of each particular variation. So the word chance we see immediately in the writings of Charles Darwin simply can be used to express our ignorance concerning the actual mechanisms involved. Darwin was also... Insistent that the composition of living things in a certain habitat defined by its history and by its environment was very far from being due to chance. So, to quote from him again, when we look at the plants and bushes, clothing, and entangled bank, Darwin wrote, we are tempted to attribute their proportional numbers and kinds to what we call chance. But how false a view is this? He said, the reason why it was false. Is because of natural selection here, and here's the quote, but if variations useful to any organic being ever do occur, assuredly, individuals thus characterized will have the best chance of being preserved in the struggle for life. From the strong principle of inheritance, these will tend to produce offspring similarly characterized. This principle of preservation, or the survival of the fittest, I have called natural selection. Now let's leap to the present day. And a modern view of the role of chance in evolution is well expressed by a popular writer on evolutionary biology, Richard Dawkins from Oxford, who puts the point uh, very firmly, as uh, Richard Dawkins normally puts his points firmly, in the preface to his book, The Blind Watchmaker. And here I quote, take, for instance, the issue of chance, often dramatized as blind chance. The great majority of people that attack Darwinism leap with almost unseemly eagerness to the mistaken idea that there is nothing other than random chance in it. Since living in complexity embodies the very antithesis of chance, if you think that Darwinism is tantamount to chance, you'll obviously find it easy to refute Darwinism. One of my tasks will be to destroy this eagerly believed myth that Darwinism is a theory of chance. Now, close quote. Well, here clearly Dawkins is reacting against the claims made by the so-called creationists, and so he's using the word chance with a particular meaning in mind. And I think it's therefore important that we start off today by really reviewing how such words, such as chance and random, are used in evolutionary biology, and then to see how often the uses of such words in biology are actually frequently very different from the way the words are understood more mathematically word chance in english as in many languages is a very slippery one different meanings and i just want to review here we'll stick to two main meanings of chance which are particularly relevant to this discussion we could go through all the many others we haven't got time for that but i think the first type of chance we can sometimes what well, we can call it epistemological chance because it refers to all those events that are perfectly law-like in how they happen, but about which we have insufficient knowledge of their antecedents to make predictions. For example, tossing a a coin. And I think Darwin's use of the word chance in his origin of species was explicitly epistemological in places. As already quoted, Darwin saw that his use of the word chance was a wholly incorrect expression, but it serves to acknowledge plainly our ignorance of the cause of each particular variation, Quase, quote. So clearly referring here, I think, to epistemological chance. The second main type of chance uh, we can call ontological chance because there are no antecedents that could possibly be known that could enable a prediction even in principle. So in this case, it's not a question of lack of knowledge. There is no knowledge that could be known. And this is sometimes called pure chance because there is nothing that we can know which has predictive value, even in principle. If I claim, for example, that it was pure chance that I met Susan down at the shops, I might well be understood in colloquial speech, but formally, I would be wrong because there would be antecedents that could be cited to explain our unexpected meeting. For example, Susan always goes to the shops on a Saturday like me. Susan always browses in a bookshop on Saturday like me, and so forth. Our meeting was therefore a chance event epistemologically, but not ontologically. Of course, yesterday we heard much from Dr. Davenport about quantum uncertainty, and in this context, a classic example of ontological chance appears to be radioactive decay. I suppose we need to use the word appears because we can never be 100% sure There is not some hidden reason, some hidden causality why a particular radioisotope emits a particular particle of radiation energy at one moment rather than another. But to the best of our current knowledge, there are no such hidden reasons. And in practice, in any case, this makes no difference in our use of radioisotopes for all kinds of purposes, not least in medical research. For example, I've spent much of my working life using the radioisotope phosphorus P32, in my experiments. The non-radioactive form of phosphorus found most commonly in our bodies is phosphorus-31, has just one less neutron than its radioactive counterpart. Phosphorus-32, of course, is made in nuclear reactors. It then decays by half-life of every 14.3 days. And even though the timing of each emission of each radioactive particle of energy is unknown, Averaging out trillions of these events very readily generates the precise value of 14.3 days for the half-life. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to use it. And, of course, the same point holds for the other many radioisotopes. So, we can ask the question, is the ontological chance of quantum mechanics at all relevant to the mechanisms of evolutionary biology? And the answer I want to give here is only indirectly, without playing any kind of central role. And the reason is simply that in the vast majority of biological processes, including to the best of our current knowledge, the brain, specific single events at the quantum level make no difference to the system as a whole. And this is because the processes involve the interactions of molecules, each of which has the properties that represents the average of trillions of quantum events, one single quantum event makes no difference to the organism. But I suppose we can think about photosynthesis, the process whereby the sun's energy is converted into chemical energy in plants and some bacteria. That might not be the case, although the involvement of quantum events in photosynthesis still remains controversial. But of course, when the quantum events, which quite likely involved in photosynthesis occur trillions of times, Cumulatively, the results in plant growth, the level which really counts as far as the plant is concerned, the conversion of photons of light into plant energy, accompanied by the production of oxygen, that process is stable and predictable. Now, there are other single quantum events we know about in biology, those which are involved in the mechanisms of vision. Those involved in the actions of various enzymes, probably also in the mechanisms whereby animals navigate using the Earth's magnetic field, although it remains a little bit controversial still. But in animal navigation, the radical pair hypothesis, as it's called, suggests that the quantum mechanics of electron spins could form the basis of a magnetic compass sense. But again, in all cases, the quantum events are playing roles in overall systems which are highly organized and orderly. With consistent functions and outputs. They're not some hidden source of pure chance coming into biological processes viewed at least at a functional level. But could one maybe invoke ionizing radiation as a source of pure chance within the evolutionary process? For example, an ionizing radiation particle might cause the death of line A, let's call this line line A from cancer, at one moment when that would not have happened had the particle been emitted at another moment. The lion, for example, had just entered the cave and so was protected from radiation. But because of that event, lion A was no longer alive to eat antelope B, which went on to have a large and successful family of baby antelopes. Well, the precise trajectory of future evolution might be affected once this particular mutation had occurred. But note the proviso: provi- precise Trajectory. I think, as we'll discuss more in a moment, for natural selection to occur, the source of genetic variation is irrelevant, be it by radiation, chemical mutagens, or replication errors. Natural selection ensures that the overall process is one of epistemological rather than ontological chance. So having considered just by way of introduction, uh, to start with two of the main meanings of chance, epistemological and ontological, and of course, as I said, there are many more meanings besides. Now let's think about the word random and its application in the field of evolutionary biology. And we biologists tend to use the word random in biology in a different way from the mathematicians. So when biologists speak of random mutations in evolution, they're referring to the fact that genetic variation occurs in an organism without the well-being or otherwise of the organism in view. Their occurrence is not influenced in any way by the needs of the individual organism in which they occur. By contrast, mathematicians typically use the word random to to describe processes in which multiple outcomes can occur, and each is associated with a probability that gives the likelihood of that outcome. So if we take a string of numbers, if the numbers are randomly selected, then any single number in this series will have an equal probability of being selected. Such a series can be generated by random number generators of the kind that can be found on many computers. And a traditional statistical approach then examines such a series of numbers to see whether they display the property of randomness. No single number can be random because it's rather the process whereby the numbers have been generated that can be assessed as being random and that process can only be assessed with um, a rather long list of numbers. And no part of that series of numbers should provide any information about the properties of any other part of the series. So with that sort of background for the mass, we can come back to biology and ask whether this mathematical understanding of randomness is a feature of evolutionary mechanisms. And the answer is no. The best place to look for randomness might be mutational changes in the sequence of an organism's DNA. For example, if mutations in the 3.2 billion nucleotides, that's the genetic letters in our own, any DNA is called genetic letters or nucleotides, if mutations in those nucleotides that make up our own human DNA were truly random, then they should be equally likely to occur in any position. But in fact, this is not the case. And I'll just give you a couple of recent examples to illustrate that point. There was a recent Dutch study whereby they took 250 family trios, that means the father, the money, the mother, and the offspring, and they completely sequenced their genomes, which is relatively easy these days, a lot cheaper than it used to be. And uh, given that an average 38 new, new mutations appeared in the newborn that were not there in the parents, that's an interesting point in itself, by the way, if those uh, mutations were randomly distributed throughout the genome, then on average there should be some sizable gaps between them. In fact, they should be separated by a median of around 84 billion nucleotides. For example, When they actually looked at the data, that was not the case. And what they actually found were 78 instances in which there were clusters of two to three mutations found within 20,000 nucleotides of each other, which is certainly a very much smaller number than 84 million. So there's some interesting data there um, from human DNA sequences. You know, investigating the clustering of mutations in their own human offspring is clearly of great personal interest, but humans are really not the easiest species in which to look at detailed mechanisms. It's much simpler to investigate the same question in rapidly dividing cells in the laboratory, such as E-cells, for example, in this particular study. What they did here was simply expose the E-cells to mutation, and had their genome sequence soon after to see where the mutations were found. Striking finding, as you can see quite clearly, I think, here on the screen was that out of an average 45 new mutations, there was a cluster of 26 mutations in one particular region of chromosome two, whereas only 19 mutations were found in the whole of the rest of the genome. Therefore, once again, genetic mutations are very far from being random in a mathematical sense. In fact, a recent review listed around eight different ways in which the molecular machinery involved in DNA replication can lead to a greater probability that mutation clusters occur rather than mutations being randomly distributed. So the generation, by the way, of genomic mutational hotspots is actually thought to have been critical in our own human evolution. Of course, DNA mutations provide the raw material, if you like, of the evolutionary process, which generates slightly different phenotypes upon which natural selection can then operate. And as we've already noted, such genetic variation can arise in many different ways. For example, by radiation, by chemical mutagens, during DNA replication, through sexual reproduction, of course, through gene flow, retroviral insertions, chromosomal rearrangements, there are More than a dozen ways, actually, whereby you can bring uh, genetic variation into the DNA. And so the variation is random in the biological sense, arising without the well being or otherwise of the organism in view, but the variation is non random in the mathematical sense. So we can now then go on to ask a further question what types of chance are involved in generating genetic variation? Well, clearly then. There is plenty of epistemological chance involved in such me- and such these, um, these mechanisms of mutation. Mechanisms are generally far too com- complex to make any specific predictions as far as individual mutations are concerned. However, once we start averaging large numbers, then well justified generalizations can be made about such items as mutation rates, where mutations are more likely to occur in the genome. Which chromosomes are more likely to undergo structural changes and so on and so forth. So the molecular mechanisms underlying mutational changes follow the normal rules of physics and chemistry. In some cases, we're able to link susceptibility of particular regions of the genome to mutational change with the evolution of the organisms involved. If there were no mutations at all, the life would be completely static and there will be no evolution. So. No carbon-based life on Earth beyond perhaps some very early replicating life forms. But if mutations were completely unrestrained, then nothing would be alive because all the information in the the genome would end up as nonsense. In fact, it's been estimated that at least 10,000 DNA damage events occur every day in every cell of the human body, remembering that our bodies contain something like 10 to the 13 cells. So, there has to be what we might call a mutation thermostat that controls the mutation rate. And a key buffer that corresponds to the lowering of the thermostat is provided by the repair enzymes that recognize errors in the DNA sequence in its newly replicated strands and ensure that they are repaired back to the proper sequence. There are many different repair systems, and they ensure the remarkable fidelity of replication of DNA. And without them, We would all be dead from cancer rather quickly. That was epistemological chance. What about ontological chance and genetic variation? Well, the emission of radioactive particles, as already noted, displays quantum uncertainty and so represents what we can call pure chance, not something that could be predicted even in principle, at least not in its precise timing. Ionizing radiation causes mutations in DNA by directly breaking the chemical bonds that hold the nucleotides together. But it's impossible, even in principle, to predict the timing of individual mutational events. Could this then contribute to the idea that evolution is a theory of chance? Well, not really, because natural selection acts as the stringent sieve that selects which mutations will be maintained in a population and which will be discarded. And the sieve potentially operates on any kind of genetic variation, irrespective of how it was produced. So let's just think a little bit more about the role of natural selection. Here's a definition of how we define it in contemporary evolutionary theory natural selection is the differential reproduction of alternative genetic variations determined by the fact that some variations are beneficial because they increase the probability that the organisms having them will live longer or be more fertile than organisms having alternative variations. Over the generations, beneficial variations will be preserved and multiplied, injurious or less beneficial variations will be eliminated. Now, in practice, much variation in genomes is selectively neutral. In other words, this kind of variation Really makes no difference to the organism in question. And so the variant nucleotides at that particular position in the genome will drift around in the population. That's what we're talking here about an interbreeding population without any effects, beneficial or otherwise, on the animal or the plant involved. But as neutral mutations accumulate in the genome of of an individual, there may come a day when a new functionality comes into being as these genes interact in some way, either via the protein products, and or as a consequence of regulatory sequences, and in that case, natural selection may begin to operate. And when genetic variation does make a difference to the organism, for good or for ill, as far as the organism is concerned, the organism will tend to leave over many generations greater or fewer number of offspring, what we call an evolution in evolutionary biology reproductive success. Natural selection therefore acts as a rigorous filter, as I was saying generally to reduce the amount of genetic variation in a population. In other words, it's a very conservative mechanism. And the reason for this is that the great majority of genetic changes, if not neutral, are likely to be deleterious for the organism. And it is these that will be removed removed from the population after some generations, or even immediately, if lethal, since they lower reproductive success. On the other hand, if few beneficial changes that will readily pass through the filter of natural selection will quickly spread through an interbreeding population as they bestow reproductive benefits on their recipients. That's a process in evolutionary biology, isn't it, which we call a selective sweep. The beneficial genetic variation will sweep through that population and give the benefits to a much greater number. Now, just how conservative natural selection is in its operation may be illustrated by the conservation of the amino acid sequence of many proteins that are essential to biological life as we know it. For example, cytochrome c plays a crucial role in the energy and production of cells required to keep them alive in the presence of oxygen. It's virtually is found in virtually all animals and plants. It's a small protein; it's only 105 amino acids in length. And change of a single amino acid at certain critical positions in the protein leads to a loss of function and the death of the organism. This explains why the amino acid sequence of this protein is conserved across species. you probably already uh, read there what I put on the screen, you know, the high conservation across the species. So we humans share 97% amino acid sequence uh, identity of our cytochrome C with the rhesus monkey. 87% 87% with the dog, 82% with the bat, 67% with the fruit fly, 64% with the moth, and 44% with yeast, with which we last shared a common ancestors about a billion years ago. So I think this makes the point, isn't it, very strongly that natural selection is a really conservative process. I hope it should by now be clear why it does not really matter whether Variation comes in the genome via the pathway of epistemological chance, most of it, that is to say, or ontological chance, as in radiation effects, as in both cases, the effects of natural selection are most influential in bringing about certain constrained outcomes. If you like, natural selection is like the potter molding the clay over a long period of time. The consequences of genetic variation are molded by the potter of natural selection shape an interbreeding population into a slightly different collection of phenotypes. We have to remember of course that evolution is operating at population level. There's a little mantra if you are not familiar with biological evolution there's a little three-step mantra that is quite useful actually for teaching your offspring. You can have an exam at school in biological evolution or something that genetic variation happens, individuals are selected, and populations evolve. And that's civil mantra. Probably help your children to pass their next exam, right? Genetic variation, then, plus uh, natural selection are the central mechanisms in Darwinian, Darwinian evolution. But clearly, there are many other events that affect the process. Around 65 a million years ago, a huge asteroid struck the Earth, estimated to be about 14 kilometers in diameter, which left a massive crater about 112 miles in diameter and 30 miles deep buried beneath the sediments off the Yucatan coast in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was this catastrophe that probably contributed to the extinction of the dinosaurs, along with increased volcanic activity around this time. But as the Earth recovered from the shock, And climates were restored, so new opportunities were created for adaptive radiation process, whereby rapid diversification of species occurs in order to fill up a collection of empty ecological niches. And this is how primates, it's thought, really began to get a foothold on this planet, becoming a lot more common about 50 million years ago. And the 200 primate species alive today, including us, of course, represent the remains of an adaptive radiation that probably gave rise to about 6,000 species of uh, primate altogether. Do such chance events as the hitting of the Earth by a large asteroid, so altering the history of evolution during the past 65 million years, not suggest that evolution taken as a whole is a chance process? Well, I want to say it seems not really, not really. Clearly, there's plenty of epistemological chance here, given there's no way that we could describe all the antecedents of these processes. However, it's worth noting that the orbits of asteroids, at least large ones, are now well-known. Asteroid orbits are, in principle, as predictable as Earth or Sun orbits. In any event, had the asteroid not hit Earth 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs would have eventually gone extinct anyway, perhaps for climatic reasons. all species eventually do, especially species comprising large animals. Darwinian processes end up with replenishing the earth once again in the end, even though there may be some big extinctions along the way. Now, none of what we said so far should be interpreted as if genetic variation plus natural selection were the only two phases of the evolutionary process. There are plenty of other candidates that play important roles also in the overall process, although evolutionary biologists are somewhat divided on their relevance as an ongoing discussion. All big theories in science are mobile, they're moving, they're expanding, they are changing, and that's certainly true of the theory of evolution. But the important point here is none of the other ideas or factors that have been suggested so far to be important really introduces the idea that evolution is a chance process in the various ways of the meaning of chance we've been thinking about so far. Instead, they tend in the other direction, in fact, they rather highlight the constraints which are involved. So just to summarize where we've got to so far then, at least at the molecular level of our thinking, is evolution a chance process, taken overall as we think about the process? Well, I think, Dawkins is right, it doesn't look like it. Mutations are indeed random in the trivial sense that they happen without the organism in mind, but this is hardly relevant to the main question. More significant is the fact that the generation of genetic diversity is not random in the mathematical sense because mutations are not evenly distributed across the genome. And in in any event, natural selection generally plays the most important role in the end. Certainly, there are plenty of chance events involved of epistemological variety asteroids hitting Earth, and we could give many hundreds of other, thousands of other examples, of course, of that. But the system as a whole is incredibly fine-tuned to bring about a carefully orchestrated balance between stasis and change. and Of course, we're the fortunate beneficiaries of this history of biological fine-tuning. Now, so far, we've been thinking mainly of evolution, have we, at this molecular level? Whereas in practice, of course, most biologists studying evolution are investigating animals and plants at the population level. And at this level, also, there are many striking observations which illustrate the point. I think that evolution is very far from being a chance or random process. I just want to mention one example here. for Reasons of time, we could give you dozens of examples, but let's just stick to one which is an example of what we can call these constraints in the evolutionary process. And this example is provided by this well-known phenomenon of evolutionary convergence. If evolution was a random or chance process, then you might expect that animals and plants would invariably find different adaptive solutions to the challenge of living in a particular ecological niche. But that is not what is observed. In reality, evolutionary convergence refers to the repeated but independent development of the same biochemical pathway or organ or structure in different biological lineages. In other words, as animals or plants face the challenges of adapting to particular environments, so at independent times and in independent circumstances, the evolutionary process has converged on the same adaptive solution, In hundreds of cases generating very similar ways of meeting the challenge. And some of these adaptations are so remarkably similar that it's difficult to believe that a particular species with the adaptive structure did not evolve from the other, but such is not the case. And a single example of convergence will be provided here to illustrate this point, although many hundreds of examples, as I say, could be cited. So one of the most One of the famous examples of convergence is the evolution of the eye. 96% of all animal species contain a complex optical system. There are 10 main types of eye, but most fall into two categories, camera eyes or compound eyes. Despite their complexity, both types have evolved independently multiple times in quite different evolutionary lineages, perhaps maybe more than 40 times. As the name suggests, camera eyes work on the same principle as a pinhole camera, with light entering the eye via the pupil and passing through the gel inside to focus on the retina, a network of light-sensitive photoreceptor cells that then send the messages to the brain, where they are integrated to construct a composite image. Now, example of convergence that has been recognized now for more than a century, in fact, is that between the camera eyes of Uh, The cephalopods like squid and octopus, and the eyes of vertebrates. And the similarities are striking, aren't they, when you look at this image before you, with some interesting differences also, of course. For example, in our own eyes, we have a blind spot due to the exit of the nerves from the retinal photoreceptors in a bundle in the middle of the retina, so that light cannot be detected in that particular area. The camera eyes of the squid and octopus, Actually, better arranged, you could say in this respect, in that the nerves leave the retina from the backside before being gathered into a bundle, so there is no blind spot. But in practice, our brains fill in the missing information, so it does not make much difference either way. In the present context, the important point to note is that the evolution of cephalopod and vertebrate eyes has occurred in evolutionary lineages separated by millions of years of evolutionary time. Now, there are plenty of fine books uh, on this particular topic of evolutionary convergence, and there's uh, on the plug particularly by my colleague here in uh, in Cambridge, Professor Simon Cormier-Morris, I suppose, wrote a real classic book on that, which you may have read, "Life Solution, Inevitable Humans in a Lonely Universe, if you want a very expanded version. And you have, um, <laughs> it's not a cheap book, The Runes of Evolution there, published by Templar Press, a wonderful book, if you have the time. Or if you just want to look at a website, um, you can look at www.mapoflife.org there, and there you will find many, many interesting examples of convergence. But what I want to do is just um, just think very briefly about implications for theology. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a theologian. Or I like thinking about these things, but um, I'm going to leave... To theology to the next talk, because I know that talk is going to look at the topic much more thoroughly. But just a couple of reflections here um, as we finish off this talk. As you'll know, since 1859, evolution has been used in support of every kind of ism you can imagine, in support of capitalism, communism, racism, militarism, eugenics, feminism, theism, atheism, I mean, you can go on with so many of them. Uh, Many of them, of course, are mutually exclusive. And I think evolution provides a great example of the ways in which the grand theories of science can be so readily socially transformed for ideological purposes. It's one reason I wrote the book, Uh, and I didn't write the book, but I co-edited a book with um, Ron Numbers some years ago which was mentioned in the introduction there, Ideology and Biology from Descartes to Dawkins. But my The aim here is definitely not to attempt some bottom-up metaphysical inferences from our conclusion that evolution is not a theory of chance. Although, I have to say that evolution, if you stand back and look at the process as a whole, certainly looks as if it's goal-directed. But instead of going in that direction, what I just want to do here is take a couple of examples where I think the current scientific data count against certain metaphysical inferences. That have been suggested to arise from the evolutionary process. One of the examples I'm about to give is historical, and the other is more contemporary. So, the historical example comes from the French molecular biologist Jacques Monod, 1970 book. Maybe those here who are of my generation will remember uh, this book quite well Chance and Necessity in which he argued that since evolution was based on chance, so the universe was one in which a type of metaphysical chance rules. Mano concludes from the molecular biology that was known in the 1960s, and I quote, that man knows now that he is like a gypsy camping on the edge of the universe where he must live. The universe is deaf to his music, indifferent to his hopes as to his suffering or his crimes. Okay, So here we have the The idea that chance somehow rules over everything, almost as if it were an agency or a metaphysical principle. So, with respect to molecular biology and genetic mutations, Walter wrote that we say that these events are accidental due to chance, and since they constitute the only possible source of modifications in the genetic text, itself the sole repository of the organism's hereditary structures, it necessarily follows. The chance alone is that source of every innovation of all creation in the biosphere, and nothing warrants the supposition or the hope that conceptions about this should or ever should, could be revised. So as I say, here we have what to me sounds rather like Psyche, the Greek goddess of chance, maybe together with Fortuna, a Roman counterpart. So here, chance has become an agency. In Britain, at least, National Lottery winners are always hoping that lady luck will bestow upon them their lucky number. But, of course, suffice it to say that chance is not an agency and chance doesn't do anything. And so here I think we have a classical example of a scientist building a metaphysical worldview on a current understanding of their science, which we now know to be false. One cannot imagine a scientific field more organized, and constrained by the laws of chemistry and physics than genetics and molecular biology. And anyway, the idea that molecular biology can lead to the existential idea that we are like a gypsy camping on the edge of the universe where we must live, I think to me anyway, just sounds rather weird. So let's look at a more contemporary example of those who try and build metaphysical worldviews on what they think is correct science. And I think we can. Take the examples of those who claim that life cannot have any ultimate purpose, any ultimate teleology indeed, because they think that the appearance of any living thing, including human life, is just an evolutionary accident. Therefore, in this view, evolutionary history is necessarily purposeless. For example, here's American philosopher Daniel Dennett, who asks whether the complexity of biological diversity can really be the outcome of nothing but a cascade of algorithmic processes feeding on chance? And if so, says Dennett, who designed that cascade, gets on to answer his own rhetorical question by saying nobody, it is itself the product of a blind algorithmic process, adding that evolution is not a process that was designed to produce us. Well, I think the problem with Delitz's attempt to extrapolate from science into metaphysics is simply that his science is just mistaken. As we've seen, the evolutionary process taken over all is really not a chance process, providing one defines clearly what one has in mind by the use of the word chance. So talking about the process as a blind algorithmic process really doesn't make any sense. The point here is not that studying The evolutionary process will somehow reveal to you the purpose of life, but simply that the process provides no support for someone trying to claim that it's necessarily purposeless. Now, these last two points may sound rather negative, but I do think that understanding contemporary scientific theories properly can help in the process of clearing away what I call the ideological junk that can so easily become attached to them. So I hope that as we continue to understand evolutionary mechanisms and evolutionary history more clearly, that this will contribute to this junk-clearing exercise. And to finish on a more positive and more theological and indeed more theological note, let me just quote from the late Father Adam McMillan, professor of philosophy at Notre Dame University for so many years, a great personal friend, as well as a friend of the Faraday Institute. Uh, since its beginning here in Cambridge in 2006. Father Mullin expresses the teleology of evolutionary history so well, and I quote, When Christ took on human nature, the DNA that made him the Son of Mary may have linked him to a more ancient heritage, stretching far beyond Adam's, the shallows of unimaginably ancient seas. And so in the incarnation, it would not have been just human nature that was joined to the divine, but in a less direct, but no less real sense. All those myriad organisms that had unknowingly over the eons shaped the way for the coming of the human, close quote. So I will finish there. And just again, to mention a few books, uh, one or two were already mentioned in the introduction. Can I mention in particular a book um, that came out a couple of years ago? This book, Is There Purpose in Biology? Um, And if you can't see the subtitle print on your screen, the subtitle is The Cost of Existence and The God of Love. But many of the arguments I've been presenting here so briefly are expanding there at some length, and uh, you might find that useful. I've mentioned there The Faraday Shop, because you can get books there, uh, which are heavily discounted. Um, And so I just recommend if you want to get them, then that's the place to go. Creation Revolution, we have to choose, already been mentioned, 2014, second edition. Um and this book, Always Saves to Our Genes, that came out just a few months ago, Cambridge University Press, is also very much in a sense about teleology actually, but it's a critique of behavioral genetics written from the perspective of a critique of deterministic kind of um inferences that some people try and make out of that field and it's just presenting the field of behavioral genetics, I hope in a more balanced way that will help us not to do that. So thank you for listening and thank you very much for your attention.